0: It was uh, probably there's a a Sports Illustrated article like 10 years ago in 2006 uh, that was written and was called it's great to be average. Um, So if any of you are overachievers, if any of you are um, a little controlling or perfectionistic, I just want to share with you. It's great to be average close in prayer. Uh, No, um, because it was written by Sports Illustrated, what it was doing was um, talking about the average annual salaries of professional athletes, and they're kind of not household names. They're not people that don't have a lot of endorsement deals. They're they're not people that you see on billboards or on commercials, but they're just sort of ho-hum people who happen to fill spots or play roles amongst all the superstars uh, on these professional teams. And um, they kind of picked out a player from each of the four major sports and kind of talked about them and where they had bounced around and kind of what their earning were doing but uh, i looked i I, so i thought about that ever since and i looked uh did a little quick research this week to figure out some of the average annual salaries for the four major sports and for nba the highest the average annual salary the average because we're just talking about what it means to be average is 5.3 million dollars for the uh, major league baseball it's 2.7 million Um, For the uh, NFL, it's 1.9, and then the NHL, the Hockey League, is uh, 1.5, just slumming it at $1.5 million a year, simply to be average. And I think the point that I would like to make is that God doesn't need any one of us to be superstars. We just need to be role players in what God is trying to do. There's this idea that if I could only earn this or if I could only accomplish this, then somehow I could leverage that for the greater good. And while that's true, I think God is content with each of us playing normal and ordinary roles, but having hearts and minds that are dedicated to him and so uh we can all play a great role regardless of how much intelligence we have how much money we have how much talent we have Um, and what i'd like to talk about a little bit tonight is the idea of generosity and the reason i frame it in the context of average is that when we see acts of generosity and you don't have to agree with me but it just seems like generosity doesn't feel that average generosity doesn't feel normal to us Gener- generally when we see acts of generosity it feels profound it feels like recognition is needed and, and needs to be celebrated and i'm not criticizing the need to celebrate generosity but what i am saying is it doesn't feel like it's a normal average part of our life our culture feels like it teaches us that accumulation is more important, that that somehow self-promotion is is more important. Um, And so we're in this place where the accumulation and the possession, and we're we're trained to be self-promoting and to increase our levels of comfort. And the problem is, with any of this, is that it just won't change a life, most notably our own. So, what does it mean to live generously, to work hard, but to be people of faith, where faith integrates into the whole of life? And so again, I think that generosity starts to feel like something above and beyond. Um, Sometimes it feels extraordinary. like it's only for a good cause or followed by a good or appreciative response or it has the feeling that you have to uh, have a lot to be able to be generous but I think it's supposed to be a part of our normal and everyday and ongoing life with whatever we have at our disposal and so whether you are a million dollar multi-million dollar professional athlete or you're a high school kid scooping ice cream at Lick trying to save up for your first used car. I think god has equipped all of us with the capacity to bless to encourage to meet needs and to be generous and so um maybe some of you are familiar with this parable. There's a parable of a of a generous farmer who at different points goes out during the day and hires. So it's a long day. It's not an, uh, an eight hour work day, but he starts at the crack of dawn and he goes out and he finds some workers for his field and he says, I'll pay you a denarius, a one day's wage to come and work. But about 9 a.m. he goes back out and he finds some. So it's probably started around 6 a.m. Three hours later he goes and finds workers and brings them in. He goes back at the noontime hour where he still finds more workers and brings them back he goes back at 5 p.m. which for most of us starts to feel like quitting time and he says what have you done they said well we haven't been able to find work and he says come and find work and they work till dark to which at the end of the day he pays them all the same amount and it sort of outrages at least as the story goes the people who had started at 6 a.m. versus the people who had started at 5 p.m. And I've got to tell you, that's kind of how I would feel. That if he starts noticing that he's paying the short timers the same amount, well then he's going to round up for us who started at the beginning of the day. Except the, the landowner who plays the role of God is is questioning their questioning of him and he asks a question that I think is really significant in this passage and he says are you envious because I am generous so this is where if we were like good Mission Hills disciples we would pull out our camera phone and we would say let me take a picture of this guy's feet because I want to walk a mile in his shoes because he's teaching me something about what it means to be generous not what it means to be deserving, but what it means to be generous. And he questions the other workers, are you envious because I'm being generous? Now, here's what I would say. To understand this better, we need to understand the the, the nuances of language, and not just language, but idioms. Idioms are those things that don't always translate really well. Now, I grew up with a mom who immigrated from Norway when she was in middle school, and she couldn't speak a word of English. And so as a young child growing up, she was always a little bit embarrassing because we always had to tease her about being a foreigner. So like back in the day when Guess was a really popular brand, she would be talking about, and she always referred to it as Guess Who? And I was like, Mom, it's not a question. It's just a brand. Guess Who? You know those jeans, the Guess Who brand but she remembers the story of being um having this broken english and the teacher coming into class and again this is significant for those of you who are living among immigrants we we have an immigrant crisis now but it helps to walk a mile in their shoes and she heard a word that she recognized and it was tomorrow i want you to bring flower and so she was excited because she understood what the what the homework assignment was and so she gathered up flour because baking was a big deal. You didn't learn, you, you, you made sure you learned your domestic skills at home and so she shows up with her baking goods except that the, it wasn't just F-L-O-U-R it was flour as in from the garden and everyone comes with a flour and of course it's not that big of a deal except when you're an immigrant all you're trying to do is fit in and be normal and not draw attention. It became this hilarious thing. She also tells the story of my Tanta Barrett, uh, my aunt, who, um, who wanted to make a broth. Um, and so when she went to the butcher shop, yeah, um, the word in Norwegian for broth, is, it's a really weird translation, but it literally means power. And so when she went up to the butcher, she asked for power legs so that she could make her broth. And again, it was comical, but there's something that gets lost in the translation. And if any of you have ever looked at idioms, I don't know how many of you come in, and English is your second language, but as someone who speaks often or teaches publicly, I've often been approached by people who are of foreign descent coming to me and say, what does this word, or what, you said this. And so we have lots of idioms, we use them all the time, we don't even realize it. Everything from um, break a leg, which we all understand means good luck in some kind, to um, are you just pulling my leg? as in making a joke, or you're the apple of my eye, to well, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. But if you're coming from a foreign country, none of this actually makes sense to you. And you go on and on from, oh, the cat's got your tongue, or, or um, I don't know, what was the idiom that your mom or dad always said, but We have them, and they don't always translate well. And the reason I bring that up to you is because Jesus used common, everyday, average language that would have been understood to his original audience, but sometimes it's kind of lost on us. And so when he starts talking about generosity, there was a phrase that we um, don't quite always understand. And maybe the best way I can illustrate it is Jesus is one of his early coming out parties when he does this initial sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, which is roughly gen, uh, Matthew chapter five through chapter seven. And I don't want to talk about all of them, but he goes through section upon section. He starts out talking with the blessed are you who, but then he gets into different parts. One of those parts is called Treasures in heaven and he gives a great Teaching on the topic of generosity But some of it gets lost on us, but he has this verse that he says um, and he's trying to teach a new operating system and he says the eye is the lamp of the body and if your eyes are healthy your whole body will be full of light now this is the niv the king james version says if you have a single or if if your eyes are of single focus your whole body will be a full of light but if your eyes are unhealthy or if your eyes are evil your whole body will be full of darkness if then the light within you is darkness how great is that darkness Okay, that doesn't sound really compelling. That doesn't sound real inspiring. But what he's using is a Hebrew idiom. And the idiom was was talking about what it meant to have a good eye. And they could make reference to people about having a good eye. And a good eye simply meant that if someone had a good eye, it meant that they were generous that they would care for the needs of the poor, that there would be some kind of motivation of compassion. The opposite was equally true. If someone had a bad eye, it meant that they were stingy, that they would turn maybe a cold shoulder to those who were in need, thinking that someone else will help. And this was a common idiom, just like we have today, but we don't always read that in. So in the example that I just talked about, where you have this generous farmer, and he says, and he he brings up the point, he says, are you envious because I'm generous? It's like saying, is your eye bad because I have a good eye? That's how it comes out in the Greek we friends want to be people with a good eye but having a good eye or a generous heart doesn't happen accidentally sometimes we run and find opportunities and we just feel so inspired but what i realize that for tran- for transformation for generosity to be transformational both in me and in others i need a systematic way i need an ongoing way in which i can express that because that's who i believe god is that we serve a generous God, and God has lavished on us all of this to be simply stewards of, and so he talks about this again and again, and Jesus wasn't actually referring to eyesight. He was referring to the condition of a heart, and so when he talks about being good, the Greek actually talks about being single-minded or single-focused, as in not having a divided heart, Paul later teaches uh, in Ephesians, and he talks about um, us opening the eyes of our heart. Maybe you're familiar with the songs. It comes out of um, Ephesians chapter 118, and it says this, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened or opened in order that you may know the hope to which, God, to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe, that power is like the working of his mighty strength. So the first prayer that Paul prays for this church in Ephesus implies that there's simply another way to see. As if you can now have your physical eyesight, but the, the more you grow in faith, it's like putting on a new lens in which you be able, you're able to see things that God sees that you hear that which God hears, that the things that break God's heart become the things that break our hearts. And so Paul talks about another kind of scene, as if there's layers to which I would say, I think spiritual maturity, the the way we grow in faith, is not how long we sit in a a pew or how big of checks we write, but I think the, the, the mark of Christian maturity is a growing awareness of the presence of God so that we become sensitized to the opportunities, to the needs, and to the resources that we have right in front of us. This is what it means to be people who have a good eye. So Paul's prayer is not a natural prayer. It's it's a deeper, deeper way of seeing. Um, This week, Uh, I mentioned earlier about Starla a few weeks ago, I brought up one of her paintings here. Starla is a gifted artist um, uh, and she makes, um, she's gotten to a point where her, her works of art are actually quite expensive. Um, They're, they're considered in some cases masterpieces. There was one, in fact, um, this week I, I was gonna meet her for coffee and I said, Starla, is it okay if I just come over to your house and I'll just bring coffee there? because she had just completed in her garage uh, a renovation and just dedicated her whole garage to be in a studio, and I wanted to see her studio, um, but I also wanted to sit in her living room, and wall to wall, it's all of these works of art. Things that change over time, and um, she creates new stuff, sells other things, um, but she's sold quite a bit of art. I have to tell you, though, um, when it was sitting on her wall and she's just telling the story, it felt, very vulnerable it felt like she was sharing like it would be like sharing her diary because um a lot of it was 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 painted in a very emotional state she says oh when i painted that i was just bawling or when i'm when i painted this and and i thought that i mean it was it was very revealing and then she she took me to this one in 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 another room where it it was these two deers that were kind of uh or bucks as it were locked up with horns and um I see it, and I go, oh, yeah, they're butting heads, and, and then she can kind of peel back the layers, and so she started talking to me about training your eye to see, and she said, you know, for your eye to see, you have to be willing to see beyond the, the initial surface. You, you have to be able to go Um, To deeper levels and and so I I began to talk to her and then of course I I had to kind of get it and and this is what she described She says you have to see with an imagination and look beyond what's on the surface There's always more to what meets the eye now for those of you who are engineers or not artists, this is a good tutorial because at some point you're going to be dragged into someone's living room and have a nice work of art or a museum. And it might help to be able to appreciate something that at face values looks like nothing. In fact, my, my sort of evaluation of modern art was if my kid could do that, I'm not impressed. And that's kind of how I evaluate modern art. But she feels things on a deeper level, but she sees things on a whole nother level. And she said, uh, and this is what I thought was interesting. When we lose our capacity to have a childlike faith and wonder about the world, we get tunnel vision guilty. Our imaginations are dulled by our intellect, our reasoning, and our fact finding. And worse yet, as grown ups, we think that everything should have an explanation and there's no such thing as supernatural or the unexplainable. As an artist, it's my job to keep a childlike imagination um, and to keep seeing. And to be able to see correctly, you have to be able to get on your knees and humbly ask our Lord to give you the eyes so that you can see. So whether we're appreciating art, or whether we're discerning needs, or whether we're evaluating our own resources, or stumbling across opportunities, I think we need to keep praying the prayer of Paul open the eyes of our heart so that we may have a good eye a generous eye to be able to see that which God sees so just like art we just need to train our eyes to see and whether it comes to our wealth or whether it comes to our success our talent our abilities our education our relationships it's easy to think that somehow I did that I worked hard, I earned that, I put forth the effort. That was my charm, that was my intelligence, that was my ability, except where did we get the ability to even read? Where did we get the capacity to create something out of nothing, whether it be a spreadsheet, a business deal, or a work of art on canvas? Where did we get the ability to have the health to be able to accomplish this. And what we learn to see is God is the source of all of it. And there's this verse that comes to us out of uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Uh, and in Deuteronomy 8, um, verse 17, uh, it says, uh, let me find it again. It says these words. Um, verse 17, you may say to yourself, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. So it confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is written today. So here's what I like to think, is there's lots of ways for us to express generosity. There's lots of ways um, that I'm, I think generosity is a a kind of a big umbrella. And 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 many of you do that, whether it be with your time or or with your 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 financial resources or with your gifts and your ability Um, Right now what I want to do is um, Theo I want to invite you to come up and join me because um, I Think one of the things that um, Theo and I have had a lot of discussion about uh, Is is these rhythms and I think that when you start to talk about a rhythm of generosity what you're talking about Is a systematic approach towards managing or stewarding the the blessings in your life and so if we just become sort of haphazard about our gifts our time talent or treasures I think we miss out on the on the richness or or the fullness of God's presence and so um, let me just give you a little bit background on Theo Theo uh, is our executive pastor though this is sort of a second career and him finally answering i think an original calling Um, but theo grew up in the church in small town texas and um and went to a christian college but i would say that just in listening to you um, faith was never something associated with joy it was more a chore and the the sort of heavy handedness that you grew up with um wasn't really compelling exactly okay good so we got um uh, in college, uh, even though he went to a Christian college with the idea that maybe he would pursue something in ministry or in the nonprofit world, he was working a part-time job in banking, and that sort of whet an appetite for what it meant to build, um, not just business, but build wealth. Over the next several years, uh, actually a couple of decades, Theo amassed, uh, he started several business, built quite a bit of wealth, to the point where at 35 was ready to just um, retire early and enjoy sailing and flying and doing all the things that he Loved to do as hobby and an interest that the last two decades hasn't really afforded him because he was working seven days a week All of that wealth came to a crashing halt when a marriage uh, with some personality disorders and some problems Dissolved and as well as all the resources and so here you found yourself in the middle of life at square one But probably not even at square one Um, Working at a deficit, not just financially but emotionally just a broken man. Absolutely broken. Yeah. Um, and so with that as sort of the backdrop of of your story um, uh, I was wondering okay. Oh, and then the rest of the story is at, at in his 50s he came to work at church and we were on staff at Riverbend together and um, While you were at Riverbend you were doing kind of a stewardship ministry. He he also has a a, a degree as a certified financial planner So there there's the background Um, You start getting involved in stewardship education you start along with a couple other good friends writing a course that people could understand God's design for giving and for um, tithing and offerings tell us what that experience was like, because it felt like it was one of those interruptions for you. And you went home to Sally and realized there was kind of a wake up call for you.
1: Well, that's true. Uh, As you mentioned earlier, I grew up in a a legalistic type church and from a very young age, I was taught that, uh, you know, absolutely 10% of everything was to be given that was just absolutely requirement, but there was no, no reasoning or background for that. And so, uh, While we were developing the educational courses there at Riverbend, we really started studying the scripture. And one of them that uh, was pushed, I would say, heavily uh, at Riverbend, which you'd find in uh, Second Corinthians chapter nine, where it says to uh, give what's in your heart. And I mean, that's a great scripture. It talks about God wanting to have a relationship with you and helping you decide what to give, be be a cheerful giver and that type of thing. But as you continue to look through uh, the scripture and so forth, uh, there's a lot of uh, scripture there that talks about tithing and tithing a tenth, ten uh, percent, and uh, that took me back to my old days. And people tried to justify, well, you don't need to do the ten percent because that's Old Testament law, and when you know the New Testament came along, Jesus, that's what gave us uh, the Second Corinthians. Yep. Uh, so forth, and just whatever whatever feels good to you. But then I discovered uh, Genesis, either chapter 14 or 16, a scripture that talked about uh, when Abram had come, and to the high priest, he gave a tenth of everything he had to Melchizedek. And that was, that really hit me, because that was pre-law. That was before the commandment to give anything. And that was truly a recognition of uh, Abram seeing a higher power. And as you mentioned earlier, I think in one of the scriptures, it talks about uh, how everything we have uh, came from God. All of our abilities came from God. Yeah. And uh, I did accumulate quite a bit of wealth, but in, in the path to get there, I actually, can't say I gave up my faith, but I basically turned my back towards God, and I didn't use any of that
0: for, for storing up treasures in heaven, I guess. Okay, so then um, So much of the New Testament particularly the teaching of Christ you hear so much about Christ being so gracious Christ being so forgiving Christ being um, so accommodating for people who are living on the fringes and Yet one of the few times he tells this parable about a man Who is storing up treasures that he's accumulated the wealth and then decides I'm gonna push cruise control and just enjoy. I'm going to build bigger barns, and and it was one of the few times that that Jesus says, actually tonight um, you're going to be in hell. I mean, it, it was it was one of the most harshest judgments. How does a, a parable like that rub you, um, as especially as someone who's um, accumulated and then went back to broke? Oh. Speaking that's, of broken man, that's a
1: tough one. That's uh, hopefully I can get through this one. I guess I probably relate closer to that parable than about any other. Because at the height, I mean, yeah, I retired when I was 35, uh, but I couldn't stay retired. I had to start up a couple more companies. And uh, and on the eve of probably closing the largest deal I'd ever, was the largest deal I'd ever made in my life. I was just about, about one of my previous competitors. And I flew home from New York's City uh, thinking, oh man, this is going to be a great day. And I walk in the front door as my wife is walking out saying she never wants to see, see me or the girls again. So, relate to that parable, it was on that night I basically lost my life.
0: Yeah, so Jesus's judgment is it's not that you go to some sulfury, fiery furnace, it's you now have hell on earth. You lost the girls uh, as well as eventually the well
1: yeah, wealth. yeah. So, I mean I pretty much spent the next seven years in a custody battle and all that kind of stuff and uh, I basically took every everything I had and so it was back back starting over
0: so, go ahead uh, Well, there's a passage that I was uh, thinking about the, there's a a well-known passage where the, the, the people of God thought they were closer to God than God thought <laughs> and it's another Old Testament Malachi um, and, and God confronts the, the Israelites and he says um, you're robbing me and he says well how they say how are you how are we robbing you and he says you're withholding your tithes and offerings and then he goes on to say Trust me in these things and it's a strong teaching to be able to say um, Okay, I don't have a lot. In fact, I'm living in the red or whatever. H- how did you? Start to relearn the idea of tithing and the idea of, of Generous living. How did you experience that when you began to test God in these things?
1: Well, I guess I was very blessed. I mean I was
0: as recovering
1: uh, through everything that I'd been through, uh, Sally and I got together and, uh, been very blessed and so forth. As you mentioned, started to work in the river Bend and developing this stewardship class. And as I, uh, the scripture in Genesis really hit me hard. And as we just kind of putting in the, the final touches on the class and we're getting ready to, uh, we're promoting it, getting ready to teach it for the first time. Uh, we, we were giving, but we weren't giving anywhere close to 10% at that time. But as I was praying about it, I really felt convicted. So I went home, and I, I told Sally, I said, we got a choice to make. I either got to quit my job, or we've got to start giving. We've got to start truly tithing. I just felt totally convicted to that. And it wasn't like at that point in time we were uh, barely making ends meet, and we didn't, we couldn't just start tithing out of surplus. We actually had to change our lifestyle. But we prayed about it, and uh, she said, "Yeah, I agree." And so we did. And uh, I would say we we started being being blessed. I won't say we we started seeing anything of like that. And I guess uh, referring back to uh, again your, your uh, statement of Malachi, and uh, when I can think of in Malachi 3 and so forth, where God says test me on this, uh, was about the time when uh, uh, Riverbend started their building a campaign. And uh, everybody was uh, asked to pray about making a, uh, a gift above and beyond their tithes. And so uh, Sally and I started praying about it, and uh, separately together, And then we decided, okay, we'll write down a number on a piece of paper and uh, then share it with each other. So we did that. We were actually sitting out on the front porch, best I can remember. We swapped uh, notes and uh, I was hoping that hers was gonna be less than mine and we could compromise, but uh, they ended up being the exact same number. It was actually a very, at least for us, a very substantial number and not a number It was over three years, but it was not a number that we could see any way that we could make that happen. Yeah, and the pledge was for three years. Was for three years. And we didn't even see how we could make, you know, the first year that work. But uh, I went in the next morning, I guess that was a Sunday afternoon. I went in uh, to work the next morning and I also turned in my pledge. And I can't say that it was that night, but it was that week. Sally come home and she says you're not going to believe this I got a raise today and when she shared the raise with me that raise was 30 percent more than three in the entire three-year commitment Wow! and uh, you know, it was it was it was amazing so uh, it's, it's uh, again I think it's in, in second Corinthian uh, God uh, 2 Corinthians 9, I'm not sure the exact verse, but it, it says God will provide the gift. And I believe that if you just search within your heart what God's asking you to do, he's going to make that gift available. You may have to take a step of faith, but I think he's going to give you the gift to give, and then he's going to actually uh, i don't get into prosperity gospel, but in my case, its it seems like he's always given more than what I have given.
0: Thank you for sharing. I know that it's hard to retrace those steps, and I feel like, uh, like the Apostle Paul, always had this thorn in his flesh. It's like, whenever you have to retrace your steps, the brokenness is not very far behind. But yet, God's been raising up and healing uh, so much of your story. Would you just give him a hand? A great sharing. Thank you so much. So, what if uh, generous living? was supposed to be a normal part of our everyday life with exactly what we have right now and not the exception who would benefit Um, and if God is a good and generous father and we're created in the image of God it seems reasonable to assume that generosity is a significant way that God wants to reveal himself to us provide for others but also draw us near Um, I, I just have to offer this out as I was thinking this week uh, about um, I, I was sad this week at um, the, the, the kind of tenor of our cultural uh, and society's dialogue and um, um, people who are that I have worked with in ministry and um, you know whether they be outraged or gloating it was a really hard week and so I I spent some time in praying and and writing and one of the things that occurred to me is uh, a a couple of things is that I, I think we've lost a vision for the church in culture and I believe that the church was set up to be a beacon on a hill to be light in dark places to be able to meet needs and I don't think we need a bigger government with more social programs to do what the church is supposed to do But here's the problem is that the church, for quite a while, has gotten really, really wealthy um, and spent a lot of money on buildings and campaigns. And it hasn't told people what we're doing with our wealth in terms of leveraging it for justice and for mission. And so while I'm sitting here feeling critical of all these people who don't get what the church is there for, I'm also looking at the church, of which I've been a part of for 20 years, the established church. And, um, and, I, and it's not wrong to build a building or buy property or, or even, you know. but clearly um, uh, we have missed something in the way, uh, in, in, in teaching what, what the role of church is supposed to be. And so when I said, and some of you heard me say before, I, I still don't feel called to start a church. I just felt called to have a place where we can create a transformational process my calling was to make disciples so what does that look like it looks like a community centered around rhythms who are committed to a shared practice not just sharing meals instead of just having parties for ourselves we want to have parties for other people but we want to have a faith that gets expressed whether we're together or whether we're apart And it's a faith that's practical and tangible and articulate and we can share it in in a real succinct way and so That was it and generosity was a part of it And all we're doing is saying all of these are true with the heart of god And you don't have to be a theologian to be able to talk about a generous god or how much you've been blessed This is something that's doable, but it's also a way that we can integrate faith into the whole of life And so the dream then of Mission Hills is that we could be people of hope and justice and mercy where the rhythms become a practical way to share your faith. And the primary titles that you carry with you are Mm -hmm. child of God and minister of the gospel. And it doesn't matter about any other title that you might get. But we begin to see our identity as his and are commissioning as a minister, whatever your day job is, whether it be stay at home parent, or whether it be corporate executive, or whether it be a nonprofit director. I want all of us to begin to understand ourselves as ministers of the gospel. And here's seven ways you can express the good news. I've got to share one story and then I'm done. And it's a story that maybe you're familiar with but there was this story of this um, old farmer poor farmer farmer fleming is his name and farmer fleming one day heard the cries of a boy who was screaming for his life and he had gotten stuck in a muddy bog kind of a swampy area near his farm and so he ran over and with kind of some ingenuity and skill he was able to save this young boy out of the out of the house uh, out of the the swamp or the bog. Well, the next day, this really high end fancy carriage comes rolling up to his hovel of a home. And this out walks this nobleman to which he wants to greet the man who's saved his son's life. And he greets him and he says, I have to repay you for what you saved my son's life, which as a dad, as a parent, I can totally relate to this. Like I would feel just an indebtedness. And the humble farmer, uh, humble farmer, Farmer Fleming would just simply say no, no it's, it's nothing anyone else wouldn't do and he wouldn't take a dime but out walks his son and he says, this is your son? he goes, yeah it is, he says, I tell you what I would like to pay for his education I'm sure that if he turns out to be half the man you are, that it will be money well spent so at least let me pay for the same kind of education that I'm going to afford my own son the son that you saved out of the swamp well okay fine he wasn't going to be able to pay for an education well this son took full advantage he went to the best schools in England and he eventually graduated and pursued medicine in fact he's known as Sir Alexander Fleming who discovered penicillin which is pretty significant discovery what's also interesting Is that young boy who was saved years later acquired pneumonia and guess what saved him penicillin and the nobleman who came to that house today was Lord Randolph Churchill and the son that was saved twice by the family of the Flemings was Sir Winston Churchill I think that is so compelling just living with a generosity and a growing awareness of the presence of God. And maybe someone once said it this way, give with no strings attached, love like you've never been hurt, sing like nobody's listening, and work like you don't need the money, serve strangers like they're already family, dance like nobody's watching, and live like it's heaven on earth. I think that's our commissioning, to live the generous heart of God with what we already have and say, I'm already in the image of God, and he's a generous God, so how can I live into that promise and that hope and become people of hope, justice, and mercy? Let's pray together. Father, would you just inspire us with your word and remind us of your promise? Would you just give us the kind of eyes to see that which you see so that we might be a church of a good eye, but we might be people of a good eye, whether we're gathered or whether we're scattered. And may we become more aware of the needs, the opportunities, and the resources that are already present in our lives. And you would mobilize us and our faith would form Christ in us. And our faith would be for the benefit of another. And our faith would be able to transfer to the life of our children and our closest friends Mm -hmm. and other family. So make it a living faith within us. We pray this in the name of the risen Son. In Jesus' name, amen.